The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the web. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity, From Victim to Victor, and The Complete Idiot's Guide to Recovering from Identity Theft. She's testified many times in Congress and the California Legislature on privacy and identity theft issues. And you may have seen her on Dateline, 48 Hours, CNN, NBC, ABC, O'Reilly Factor, and many other shows, including her own 90-minute PBS television special, Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash privacypiracy. Hey, Mari, what's our show about today? Well, Lloyd, today our show is about privacy with regard to some biometric information and the iris scan and and iris identity solutions you know it's really hard nowadays on the internet when you don't know if you're talking to a dog or you're talking to a person you're talking to a a crazy person on the internet or you're about to date someone that who knows what they are or your customer you don't know if that customer is really who he or she says she is so you know with all of that we've heard about identity theft and all the identity problems there is a real need to have identity management solutions but we have a an interesting guest today that actually he also sent me his book which i love and it's called the texas hold'em guide to winning in business no limit and this is by jeff carter and his co-author donald kraus and we have jeff carter with us on the phone today. So let me tell you a little bit about his background because I think it's fascinating. Uh, Samuel Jeff Carter is the chief strategy officer for this corporation called ILOC, E-Y-E-L-O-C-K. And ILOC is an iris identity solutions company. So they are dealing with trying to identify us so no one can take our identity and do governmental things or commercial things that aren't really us. So ILOC helps governments and businesses around the world overcome the everyday challenges of identity management and finding out who you really are. ILOC products are deployed worldwide, including the Bank of America, the Pentagon, the Mexican border with the Department of Homeland Security, the United States Air Force, airports, and other high security places. And Jeff has spent 15 years leading revolutions in banking and technology. And he's an advisor to leaders from the Federal Trade Reserve and to emerging technology companies around the country around the country and the globe with basically a focus on identity innovation. So um, I don't want to, there's a lot more about him on our website, but you can go to and learn more about him at his website at iLock. E-Y-E-L-O-C-K dot com and our website at K-U-C-I dot org slash privacy piracy where you can see his bio, his picture, and we link to his website as well. So Jeff, thank you so much for joining us all the way from the Big Apple in New York City. Thank you so much, Mari. I appreciate you having me on your show. So how is it, first of all, we'll talk about this book, because, and I love the front of it. It's so great. It's got these two aces and 
Oh, it's just, it's Texas Hold'em, boy, I'll tell you. <laughs> so how is it that you wrote this and, and kind of compared the Texas Hold'em game to winning in business? Well, I, I think that um, Texas Hold'em is, is one of the, the few poker games that is, is quite a bit of a mind game. It's, it's more of a mind game than it is statistics, although statistics certainly help you as, with most other poker games. And that translates really well into the world of business as well. You're dealing with a lot of incomplete information. And although there are statistics and probabilities and certain types of formulas that, that help people win in business over and over again, there's a lot of feel, and some people would classify it as there's more art than science in business. And so what the book tries to do is it tries to explain some of the intricacies of, of where that art and science meet. So in other words, kind of the things that you classify as your, your gut feel or, or you have a hunch on something, um, things of that sort, things around how you read people at the table, whether it's at a high-stakes poker table or whether it's at a boardroom table uh, negotiating a business deal. And, and the similarities between those two types of environments are actually very, very similar. Right. No, I love it. And, you know, I teach negotiations here at UCI, so we talk about these kinds of things. So this is going on my reading list as well for my class. That's great. Yeah. Now, let's talk a little bit of how you got into identity management and that whole issue of privacy. Yeah, I think, the, um, you know, I'd, I'd spent uh, many years with Bank of America, and one of the, the last roles that I had um, while I was at the bank was actually looking at um, information and was actually a part of creating Bank of America's first information strategy. And as a part of that, um, as you know, um, banks all around the world, um, banks hold some of our most private information, most intimate information that we have. They know where we've been. They know, in some cases, where we're going. They know what we've spent money on. They know really all of our dark secrets, our, you know, what, what prescriptions we purchase and so forth. And, and all of that information is very powerful. So at the time there, um, actually, you know, there was a lot of incredible thinking that was going on within the company, but I actually began to do some outreach into some of the university settings and to some of the people, some of the great thinkers of really of, of our time that were also thinking about the implications for information and how that would apply to both identifying people and also how that would apply to notions of privacy and what we consider private matters today and what, what those matters may look like um, in the future. Yeah, so so that's how you got into that. You know, I know that you um, were dealing with people from MIT and Harvard and all that. And, and so what were some of the key learning, you know, specifics with regard to privacy in your research? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think that, you know, it's, as you look at a lot of the, the trends, and, you know, this was five years ago, but um, even for today's standard, it's, it still, to some people, seems far-fetched and futuristic. But there's kind of three simple um, ways that I like to frame up things, and that is that, that everything around us is information, and all of those information sources um, all make up different types of networks. And that information and those networks are all about people, places, and things. And where identity comes into that is, is really the identity of people, places, and things is the secret sauce that's been missing. When you look at places, we, we obviously have a pretty you know, global standard on how to identify places. We have you know, geo-positioning, we have GPS, 
We can understand, you know, temporal states on where people are at, what time they're in certain places. When you go to things such as tables or boxes or things that you buy in a store, um, RFID tags are becoming more and more pervasive, and they provide a way to quickly understand what is this thing or this item that's in front of you. Okay, so let's just explain that. Radio frequency identifiers are those little tags that they put in books or they put on products or they put in skirts or shirts or whatever, and that's where they'll, they'll know in the warehouse how many they have or where it's located. That's what you're talking about, right? That's absolutely correct. Okay, so that's that's what he's talking about with RFIDs. You can put it in credit cards, you can put it in passports, you can put it in anything. So that's I just want to clarify for my audience because you know this so well. I just want to make sure they know. Absolutely, and 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 that brings us to another use of RFID t- tags, which is very pervasive, is in um, access cards. So if you've entered any type of office building in the past few years, you may have a card that's in your wallet that you pull out and you you tap it against some type of scanner or or tap it um, when you enter an elevator bank or so forth. And that device scans your RFID tag and then determines whether you can have access to a certain place or not. And we have it on the tow roads too. You hear a little beep, you know, you go through the the little tunnel, and uh, it beeps, and that's the RFID that's in that little uh, transponder that you've got. Right, absolutely. So if you go back kind of to the simplicity of, of, of what I call information and networks and identity, um, you, you have information about people and places and things, and you have an identity of certainly places and things. A lot of people like to classify that the identity of people can also be those cards that are in your wallet. When that's not actually the, the case, or it might be that scanner that's on your dashboard when you go through an easy pass. What that's actually identifying is that that, that card or that that car traveled through a certain part. The, the link between that and an actual physical person is where things break down. Mm-hmm. And so what we're really examining, where I think really the next breakthrough is going to happen is in the personal identifiable area. And that is identifying all of these digital trails of information that we leave around the world and that are often bundled and sold and resold to purveyors of data um, to get us on mailing lists and and other sorts of things. All of those, really the missing link is, is that none of that identifies to an individual person. And so one of the things that that we've been looking at, we looked at during the research there at MIT and Harvard, and I've continued on with with the company that I'm at now, is understanding how IRIS could be that missing link and and how that knitting can tie together people, places, and things in a very unique view on a person and where you go, the things that you touch, the people that you interact with, um, in a much more personal and pervasive way than what you would experience through something, say, like Facebook or LinkedIn or something along those lines. Okay, so so if we have an, you're talking about an iris scan then, right? It, that's it, correct. Kind of like correct. in Star Trek where that's, you know, right? Where they right. would go and they look at the eye and that, that, would, that, that they would know that that eye is Captain Kirk or whoever it is, right? Yeah. Absolutely, and and so each of each of our individual irises, um, you know, each you have an iris in each of your eyes. Each of those is unique, and each of those has you know 
over 2,000 individualized points um, on them that give it a unique pattern. And then that pattern, which is recognizable, um, there's all types of scientific, you know, sci-fi type shows like Minority Report and others that show lasers that go into eyes and things. Um, that technology is actually not what is utilized. It's, it's simply a photograph. It's a very, very high-resolution, high-speed photograph. But that photograph creates a template and a view, and it also creates captures some other aspects about a person, their liveness, the blood pressure, the pupil dilation, so forth, to make sure that you have an actual live person in front of you. Those liveness attributes with those characteristics of what make that unique, you know, fingerprint of you, of if you will, of the eye, um, create a unique identifier for a person. Now, does that change over time with age? It actually doesn't. It's it's, it's one of the the most stable biometrics that's that's around. What happens is is that actually when you're in your mother's womb and you're and you're growing very very fast, there's a tear that happens as your eye and your pupil is being created. And that tear, if you imagine tearing a piece of paper, um, you, you can never tear a piece of paper you know, the same you know, twice in a row. Um, that tear, um, which happens during um, the time before you're born, creates that unique iris um, template. And that template, because it's protected by the cornea, it's not affected over age. Um, it actually is not affected by LASIK surgery. It has no impact with glasses, contact lenses, um, sunglasses, uh, all the types of sorts of things that you see in kind of the CSI movies and, and those type of things. So it's a very, very stable biometric um, from really the time that you're born and t- until the time that you pass away. Now, is that more, um, uh, well, you know, I'm, ta- I'm thinking about the false negatives and the false positives. Is that more, I mean, well, how, what is the percentage of false positives or false negatives in terms of of really verification of that that iris that you know right. that it's you know because when you think about fingerprints you know there are a lot of false positives and negatives so I'm just Ab- wondering you know yeah absolutely and one of the things certainly I mean there's a lot of people that talk about false neg- negatives and false positives I like to try to put it into a into something that we could all understand and that is if you imagine that when you go to swipe your bank card at at, at a bank teller. Um, if you imagine, you know, how many times do you swipe your bank card and you get someone else's bank account information in front of you? Well, that, um, I, that's never happened to me. <laughs> right. It, it, so it happens very, 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 very infrequently. Right. Now, let's imagine that you were going to use your fingerprint to access your bank account. If you were going to use your fingerprint to access your bank account, about one time in every 10,000 times you tried to use your fingerprint to access that bank account, you would access another person's bank account. Really, hmm. and 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 that although that sounds you know sounds like it's not that much. If you imagine that most of the large banks are talking to customers three thousand times a second, oh yeah, that would be like having um, someone access the wrong bank account. You know, you know, once every three seconds, which would be horrible. Yeah. Um, now contrast that with the iris. With the iris, um, the the possibility, and this is with the single eye. It's about one in one quadrillion times wow. you would have that 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 um, that incorrect access, and with two eyes, it becomes almost infinitesimal on the the characteristics there. And what would that be? Would that be because they moved? Would that be? It might be because of of a movement or because of a slight variation in the way that the lighting behind them, the ambient lighting. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, one in quadrillion is is um, 
is is very, very, very small. But then you tie that in with other external factors like with a PIN number that's put right. in or with yeah. a secondary security. Something you have besides right. something which you, yeah, something you have in, in your mind Absolutely. and something you have a token or something, yeah. So you'd have, Absolutely. have two or three and, different things that would do it, yeah. Sure. Now what now, about, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. I was just going to ask you, is there any um, any side effects of of taking this photo on the iris has there been studies on that to see if there was any danger for doing that you know there there have actually been there's you know the iris scans have been around for about 20 years and there have been literally thousands of studies um, on the various types of iris acquisition Um, the types of acquisition that are done most frequently these days which are done with a near-infrared light um, have no impact on vision, no long-term health impacts or short-term health impacts. Um, there's also been a vast amount of studies that have been done uh, to make sure that they don't cause, you know, epileptic seizures, much like, you know, computer uh, monitor makers and TV makers have been through for years and years. So, so no adverse impacts um, and, and also just the stability of that, that long-term template, which you don't find in, in other biometrics. How, how does that compare with a retina scan? You know, I read about these things, but I'm nowhere near, you know, being even a slight expert on biometrics. But what what is really like the difference then between like a retina scan and an iris scan? And, and why is a iris scan better? Yeah, the main difference is, is that an iris scan is, is unobtrusive. So you can simply, you know, if you want to think about it as opting in, you know, certainly if you close your eyes, you wouldn't opt into to the acquisition, but you can, you can literally glance while moving at an iris scanning device and have that device scan you accurately and safely. Um, with the retina scanner, the, the level of, you know, we talked about, you know, essentially one in one quadrillion um, with a single iris and an iris scan. A retina scanner can achieve actually higher levels of security than that, but it requires that a person stands very, very still. It also requires that that very, very high-powered lights um, are able to look back into the into the far reaches of your eye, oh. um, which are, can cause pain in some people and some discomfort. And, and it's not very unobtrusive. It certainly is not anything that someone would want to do on a daily basis, like accessing your computer or your smartphone or, or your bank account. Right, right. We are speaking with Jeff Carter, who's the Chief Strategy Officer for ILOC, that's spelled E-Y-E-L-O-C-K, for iLock Corporation, and you can learn more about them at iLock.com. So let me let me ask you this. Now, we've talked about the, the medical aspects that there's, you know, allegedly or supposedly, and I don't mean to say it like that, but just, you know, from what you're telling me, that the, the side effects are not bad, there aren't any, that it, there's not a health risk, it's easier to reach, and it's easier to do, it's user-friendly. So what about the privacy issues regarding even collecting any kind of biometric information, whether it's the retina scan or the iris scan or the thumbprints or the fingerprints. I have to laugh because I just um, this week got a live scan. Um, I volunteer for the sheriff's department. And of course, every five years I have to, you know, as a sheriff reserve, I have to get my fingerprints done. And then I, now I'm also volunteering for the human relations commission and they want a live scan. So I noticed when I just had my, my my live scan of my fingerprints 
Last year, I didn't have any problem. I mean, they they weren't rejected. It was real quick. This time, I don't know if it's because I'm getting older and my fingerprints are maybe fading or what, but oh my goodness, it took me like 20 minutes for each hand and each thumb. I don't know what that was all about, if it was the machine or me. Yeah, it, it, we, we definitely hear that quite a bit. And that's, again, because of, you know, just the, the, the roughness which makes up the points of presence on your finger has a, has a you know, an ability to kind of degrade over time, even just, you know, use, you know, based on just usage. I think that, you know... And that doesn't happen, like you said, that doesn't happen with the iris scan. That doesn't change over time like the fingerprint would. No, it, it, it definitely doesn't. And, you know, while, you know, one of the... One of the uh, the things that I do in my current role and I've done in the past is look at, you know, try to look at the glass half full. There's also one of the things that really brought me into this arena and, and has, you know, intrigued me to, you know, to do outreach to, you know, the folks at Center for Democracy and Technology and ACLU and others, some of the best thinkers on these type of subjects, is that when you create an environment where you're able to create a near-perfect linkage between people, places, and things at all times, there is, you know, there's always a, a big brother aspect that, that begins to turn this into what could be a negative story. There's certainly lots of regulations that are being worked on, you know, across financial services, critical infrastructure, healthcare, energy, and the like. But the one thing that, that I, I like to really look at this at is through a different lens, which is that one of the main issues that I believe that we have with privacy across the board is that there is not a reference data point that allows us to keep a strict accounting on all of the information trails that we leave. So, for instance, we go into one store and we sign up for a loyalty card and we get an identifier and we only provide a little bit of information and we go to the next store and we provide a little bit more information and they assign us a different number. These things are not actually able to be linked in a unified manner. And how that it manifests itself is, is that we, we remove ourselves from do not call lists. We, we take ourselves off um, numbers of, of, of uh, you know, do not disturb. We try to add ourselves to the list to not be disturbed as far as privacy. And then it may help us for a bit of time, and then it starts to crop back up again as the data aggregators go back out and pull all the information. And so there's not really a way to audit and to track how our information is kept, how it's stored, where it's, you know, the people that are Who's buying to you. it and selling it. And you're right. I mean, it's all over the place. Right. And so that's the one thing. So if there's a, you know, there's, there's certainly all the linkages that can take place. But in my mind, that linkage is what, and, and some people call this a utopian world, but I actually believe that this is the world that people and consumers and people that understand their information and the value of that information, that's the world that we're going to demand. We're going to demand a world where we have accountability in all the things that we touch and see and all the pieces of these value chains that we create. Because, you know, each day we create enormous amounts of value and enormous amounts of potential monetization and the problem is, is that that value and that information that we create, whether it's our buying habits, where we locate, you know, where the places that we visit, the friends that we, we uh, congregate with, 
all of that value is being sapped out into platforms like Facebook or into the telecommunication groups or into our cell phone or smartphone manufacturers, and we never see it. We don't know where it goes. We don't understand who has it. We know that it pops up when we get an L.L. Bean catalog in the mail, but beyond that, we don't really have any understanding or accounting on it. And so what I like to see is, is that with IRS being able to finally connect the, that digital presence with our physical presence, we'll have a defined, accountable, and accounting auditable trail of where we've been, what we've done, and what information is truly ours so that we can, in fact, turn this kind of pyramid on its head and put people back in control of our own information and on ultimately on our own privacy. So we can make determinations on who and how we share that information with. Well, that's, I mean, that would be great. It's a little bit of a jump to do that, but, you know, because it's really not transparent. And, and you know, it's just like now we have the Social Security, which has been our devac de facto ID, right? It's been the one for uh, government, for medical, for financial. That's that's what's been that de facto ID that everybody uses. And then, unfortunately, many people become victims of identity theft, like what happened to me back in 1996 when someone just used all of my identifiers and was able to you know, clone me and get credit and do certain things and parade as an attorney and all that good stuff. So with with an iris scan, I mean, the one thing I see on the really positive side is when the woman stole my social security number, you know, people said, well, how do we know this is really you? Do you know what I mean? Because then they thought I was the imposter or or that they weren't believing me. Well, that isn't you or you didn't, you know, you're just a malinger and you didn't pay your bills. So on one hand, having some kind of biometric information that was truly valid and verifiable would have been nice because I could say, well, look, this is my iris scan, compare it to hers. The only thing that I wondered is what if she got the iris scan before I did using my name? Then I'd have a problem. <laughs> well, and you bring up a great point. So that's there's there's kind of two things I think that that um, and there's certainly things. I mean, this is an emerging field, and and some of these things, you know, uh, you know, the the scenario that I described sounds like a complete jump, and it is. It's a huge leap, and you know, as, as Ray Kurzweil says you know, very elegantly. I mean, we're leaping so fast just in quantum leaps every day. And I think that this is one of those cases where we will see it. But there's a couple things to kind of help put your mind at ease. One of the things is is that, you know, these templates are, you know, when you take a picture of your template and you register this, so let's say that you have your iris registered, one of the great things is is that with the liveness indications that are done, um, you don't have to worry about someone taking a picture of, of your iris and, and, and sending it around. It actually becomes a bit of a paradox because all of that information that once had a tremendous amount of value almost becomes valueless because unless you have a live iris at the point of a transaction, having someone's social security number or having their bank account number or having any of those little bits and pieces that are very, very valuable now to identity thieves becomes really useless because unless you have the live iris there at the point of transaction, uh, there's not much you can do with it. 
Yeah, and it, you know what? We are just about out of time. I can't believe it. There's so, this is very exciting stuff. We're just going to have to have you back. This is just great. But I, I think people can go to your website. Are there some, just let me know, are there some uh, explanations? I mean, absolutely. I looked at your website and then maybe people can ask questions more and I can call you and find out more about it because I think it's there are some really uh, fascinating issues about this. And since I, have, since I deal with so many victims and I've seen it for so long, I have some really good ideas for you but (laughs) well i can't wait to hear them all right well thank you so much jeff carter and we will tell people to make sure that they take a look at the texas hold'em guide to winning in business no limit and also to take a look at ilock e-y-e-l-o-c-k.com so thank you again jeff take care Thank you. All right. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM and Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank. Join us every Monday morning at 8 a.m. right here on KUCI. Visit our website at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. Thanks. Stay private. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.